Good luck. <coughs> Sorry. Good afternoon. May Lord's name be um, glorified. It's indeed a great privilege once again um, to stand before you with the word of God. Um, you know, technology is very helpful in, uh, in our daily lives. I use technology a lot, but sometimes it has little quirks. You know, I was standing there uh, waiting to come, and my iPad decided to install an update. So, which means that it's updating right now while I try to preach from my phone, which I haven't done before. So, you know, I was uh, hearing last week about something similar. You know, a lot of us, I don't know if you do this, but you listen to sermons out loud in your home, right? You put it on a speaker. And, and a woman wrote in, uh, not to complain, but just to tell her pastor that he had bought 20 rolls of toilet paper for their home. And he's like, how did I do that? Because he was giving an illustration. He's, he was saying about how, you know, in the olden days, you know how pastors are always talking about the olden days, people, are wor- people had to go to the grocery store and order stuff and, and, you know, buy it and bring it home and all of that. And he's like, now all you have to do is just say, Alexa, order 20 rolls of toilet paper. And her Alexa actually ordered 20 rolls of toilet paper from Amazon. You know, what Alexa or Google Home, these are these smart devices that can do all that, all those things. So she was saying how inadvertently her pastor owed her about like $120. So technology has its place, but it's also very quirky. Um, Thank you to Brother Nishant for sharing the reading of the passage. We have been in Ephesians chapter 4 talking about God's will for his church. Our theme is let's build. And in chapter 4 of the passage that we just read, previously we read a lot about how we we are to behave in the church, how the church is to think of itself, how it is to think of its growth and its unity. But here we see that uh, we have moved on into aspects of individual behavior, showing the importance of individual character and maturity in the members of the church, in the building up of the community of God, of which each member, as we have been discussing, is an indispensable member. Um, We looked last week, or the week previously when I preached, about this idea that we have put off the old self, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and we have put on the new. At the time when we were saved, we put off the old, we put on the new self, which is modeled after God in righteousness and holiness, and we are being renewed in the spirit of our minds. Verses 25 to 32, which we just read, is an exposition, or it's like a manual of what it means to be the new self and the behaviors that should come as a result of the constant renewal of the mind. And the general format of all these verses, which we just read, is there's a positive command. And then there's a negative command. So there's a do something and do not do something. And then there's an overall motivation for why you should do something and do not do something. So for example, in verse 25, it says, speak the truth. That is the positive command. Put away falsehood. That is a negative command because we are members one of another. Because we have a motivation to be truthful to each other because we are, we are interconnected. 
Now, the reason why I chose this verse, verse 26 and 27, is because it's a more complicated verse. It does not easily resolve itself. And I chose this verse to illustrate that Christian morality and ethics, the, the behavior expected of Christians, may be simple, but it is not simplistic. So Christian morality may be simple, but it's not simplistic. What do I mean by that? So here's a simple command, right? Like speak the truth, do not lie. That's simple, you, you can understand, it's very objective. What is a simplistic version of that? A simplistic version of that is I will speak the truth without concern to context or impact of what I say. Though I will always speak the truth. That is simplistic. What do I mean by that, right? Like you go to a funeral and you stand up and say, I'm not sure if this person will be in heaven. Is it truthful? Probably. Is it what you should be doing? Probably not. That's the difference between simple and simplistic. A simple exposition of Christian morality is that I want to glorify God in what I do and how I do it. A simplistic version of it is I don't want to feel guilty or held accountable. Just tell me what to do so then I have no, nothing to think about. So the simple version seeks to glorify God. The simplistic version seeks to protect the self. So we are called to become like Christ, to imitate the character and characteristics of God within the constraints of our human limitations and the boundaries of our flesh. And when you look at the scriptures, there's a moral complexity to God himself, right? So talking about anger, Psalm 7 and verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels what? Indignation every day. That means a God who feels angry every day at unrighteousness. Sim on a similar uh, note, but slightly different, Exodus chapter 34 and verse six, which we all know, it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the God, uh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So on one hand, you see that he's a God who feels anger or indignation every day. On the other hand, he says he's slow to anger. There's a complexity. He's a God of peace, he's a God of love, he's a God of truth, in him there's no evil at all. So how do we reconcile the fact that we have a God who is angry? How do we reconcile the fact that there's an emotion in God, a passion in God, that often is sinful in human beings with the goodness of God? That is the complexity of, of, of the character of God, that when we are called to become like Christ, surely some of that complexity should bleed into our lives as well, right? James chapter one, verse 19 and 20, we know this, it quotes, or it alludes to Exodus chapter 34, but it's talking about us, it says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So there's two things here. One is that your anger may not produce the objective with which you are getting angry. In this case, he's saying, the righteousness of God cannot be produced or be brought about through the anger of man. At the same time, he doesn't say do not be angry. He said slow to anger. Slow to anger does not mean no to anger. It just means be slow, right? It's not saying don't 
get angry. It's saying, don't be hasty in getting angry. So becoming mature as a Christian becomes, means becoming more sensitive and more aware of the complexity of behavior that is demanded of us. The context and the goal and other considerations that we should have when we evaluate how we are to react. It's not just cookie cutter morality. You cannot take a list of commandments and say do this and you're all fine. Christian morality's intention is not to produce merely good people. Or in a, in a, in a way, in an under way to put it, the, the intention of Christian morality is not morality. There should be a difference between a Christian and a Muslim, right? Fundamentally, there should be a difference in how you, we do things compared to someone else. What is the intention of Christian morality? It is to become like Christ. That is the goal. What differentiates us from people around us? So using this verse and the passage around it, we'll try to address some of these issues. So specifically, we will look at what anger should be, what anger should not be, and what is the purpose or goal. What, what, is, what is rightful anger? What is anger not supposed to be? And what is the purpose or goal of anger? So when you come back to verse 26, it says in chapter four of Ephesians, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on anger. So first question is how do you interpret be angry? Now I said the format generally is that there's a positive command and then there's a negative command and a motivation. So here, the positive command is be angry and that creates a lot of problems because it sounds like you know, we are giving license to people to, to kind of let go of their emotions. The word here, be angry, is actually be angry. It's not a, it's not a concession. Some people say it's a concession. So it's like, in your anger, do not sin. So that's a concession, right? It's like saying, well, you know, we all get angry, right? But if you get angry, do not sin. That's a concession. But this is not a concession, it's a command. So be angry. So what it should tell us, it says be angry and do not sin. It should tell us that there is an anger that is not sinful. And that anger is what is commanded positively of Christians. And this verse refers back to Psalm chapter four, verse four and five. Psalm, Psalm four, verse four and five says, be angry and do not sin, exact same uh, quotation. It goes on to say, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So when Paul was quoting this verse, he knew that there was a context in which people were aware that there is a place for anger. This, is, this was different from, uh, for example, the ancient Greeks. The ancient Greeks uh, believed that there were positive emotions and negative emotions. And anger was one of the negative emotions. So they said either you suppress all anger, right, which we call the stiff upper lip, like you just hold it within yourself because it's a, because it's a negative emotion. Or there was another, there was another group of uh, philosophers who said, you just get rid of the source of anger, right? You change your circumstance or your condition so that you won't be angry. So they would say like, oh, if your wife makes you angry, you divorce her because it's not proper to be angry, so you'd remove the, the impediments to you not being angry. 
And today, in today's world, anger is an acceptable, um, what is a factor of human nature, right? Like people say, everyone gets angry sometimes. So, you know, sometimes it's even um, quoted as desirable. It's a byproduct of passion or of zeal. So sometimes you have like really angry bosses, right? Like Steve Jobs is, was a famous example of someone who would just get angry at people and, and kind of like be slightly abusive towards them. And the explanation was that, well, he gets angry, but he just really has a higher standard than everyone else. So it's okay to be angry if you have zeal and passion. But when you look at the anger of God, it's none of these things. It's not the cultural understanding of anger. See, we say God is holy, God is love. We never say God is angry, right? It's not a fundamental character of God. Instead, God's anger flows out of his holiness and his righteousness. It is his response to evil and injustice, to anything that goes against his holy and divine nature. So it's not fundamental to him, but it is a response. It's a necessary response, a necessary um, response to the demands of his holiness and righteousness. And God's anger, just like any anger, is destructive. God's anger is destructive. You know, sometimes we say God is angry at the sin and not at the sinner, which is not really true, because what we, what we intend by that is the anger is not occasioned by the, by the personality or that person, but rather by, by the fact that there is sin in that person. But when God is angry at a sinner, the effect of that anger is destructive to that person. It is not surgical, right? Like we, sometimes when we might think that anger is like, it's like laser surgery. You focus in on the tumor and remove it, but it's not like that. It's consuming fire or it is pruning. It is basically destructive energy that is released for some purpose. See, God is slow to anger, but he is also the God who destroyed the idol worshipers around the golden calf. His anger destroyed 70,000 men, you know, when you read 2 Samuel chapter 24 because of the census that David took. In Romans chapter 1, which we all know, his wrath is revealed against all mankind. And it doesn't say there that the wrath is a positive energy. It's, an, it's a destructive energy. You know, anger, and this is the most common analogy that everyone uses, I didn't copy this, but I thought of it, and then I found out that everyone else used the same thing. Anger is like nuclear energy, right? I'm assuming many of us, or all of us will know nuclear energy, or as the Americans call it, nuclear energy. What is nuclear energy? It's a destructive force that can be harnessed for positive impact. Yet, if it goes out of control, it can consume the very thing it seeks to protect. You know, we read uh, quite a few years back about this, you know, the Japanese nuclear power plant that, was, uh, that had a failure because of the tsunamis and how something that was intended to provide energy ended up um, you know, destroying the, inhab the habitat around it so that all the people had to live. So God's anger is like that. It's like nuclear energy. It's a, it's a destructive force. But... There are some aspects of God's anger that we have to understand if we have to realize what 
being angry means for us. First is that God's anger is purposeful. His anger is against evil, against sin, against unholiness. His anger is never, like I said, a fundamental part of his character. He's not angry just because he wants to be angry. And it is protective. Exodus chapter 22, verse 22 to 24 says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath or my anger will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. So it's purposeful, it's against evil, it's protective. It seeks to protect people from the effects of evil and sin and injustice. Sometimes that anger is directed against us to protect ourselves from the very worst aspects of our own sin. That's what sometimes we call pruning, right? Like God prunes us through discipline, is his anger directed against us in order to change us, in order to protect us from being devoured by the sin that we have within us. So it's purposeful, it's protective. Then it's controlled. We read God is slow to anger. What does that mean? It means that he can, he is in control of his anger. He, he, he cannot be, what do you say, like he cannot let go if God's anger was uncontrolled, just think about it. What hope does anyone have of surviving the fire of his wrath? So it's controlled. And then it's considerate. You know, this verse in Psalm 103 and verse 9 says, He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. So not only is his anger controlled, but it's considerate. His, his anger considers the context or the situation his anger does not exist outside the realm of his love and faithfulness and his mercy. So it's purposeful, it's protective, it's controlled, it's considerate. And you can see an example of this from the life of Jesus. Many examples. One example, Mark chapter 3, verse 3 to 6 says, you know, this is the, the man with the withered hand who, who had come to be healed. And the Pharisees were looking for a way to, to trap Jesus. And, and this was the Sabbath day. And he said, so Mark chapter three, verse three to six, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He's asking the Pharisees, I know you have come to trap me, saying that you shall not do any work on the Sabbath. So you're waiting to see if I will heal this person. Verse five, and he looked around at them, at the Pharisees, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So you see, Jesus got angry because they were misusing God's law for their own purpose. But at the same time, he's also grieved. He's sad that their heart was so hard. So his anger was mixed with grief. But at the same time, you know, when these same Pharisees or the same group of people, I'm not saying maybe the exact same individuals, but the same group of people passed by him when he was on the cross. After they had put him on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. So he's angry, he's protective, he's in control, and yet he is considerate. 
Now, I like what Tim Keller has to say. He says, God has put anger in us ideally to react against evil and to protect and defend others against evil. That's the purpose of anger, to, to react against evil, against unholiness, against sin, and also to protect and defend others against the impact of evil. What lens can we use to understand how we should be angry? And I think it boils down to the greatest commandment, which is love God and love others as yourself. If you love God, you'll be angry against things that go against his holiness. If you love others, you will be angry against injustice and the impact of sin upon the, in the life of someone, whether that sin is perpetrated by someone else or whether that sin is perpetrated by that very same individual. Too often we are not angry about the right things. There's a lot of evil and injustice that is in this world that we have become accustomed to either in society or in the lives of people around us. So we are passive and emotionless. And our lack of anger means that we are happy with not doing anything. So we are perpetually angry about un unimportant things. Right? There's a lot of people uh, who are angry that Trump was got elected like three years ago. They're angry. But then we are not angry about other things. We're not angry about human trafficking or, or uh, you know, you know, sex slavery, or so many social ills. We're not angry about continual sin in the life of a friend or a brother or a sister. But we are angry about things that we should not be angry about. So God says be angry to, be, to react against evil and injustice so that we can be active in the, with the goal of seeing a change. And how do we effect that change? Well, first off, how do we live our own lives? and order our actions and our motivations. That's important. How do you pray? If you're angry about certain things and, and it says, you know, you cannot change it. If you cannot change it, you pray. You pray to God to change it. If you're not angry about some things, you will not pray about it. What about discipline? When you're angry about sin in the life of, uh, you know, your par uh, of your children, it's the life of your parents, uh, in the life of your children or you know, in the church, you're angry about sin and the impact of sin in someone's life. That's, that's the, one of the motivations for discipline. Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians, he said, you know, I, I, I accused you of these things and, and you became angry and it produced a godly sorrow that led to change. If our anger is directed towards the abuse of God's holiness and the protection and the growth of others, then we will imitate God in his anger, in the best way that we can. Not in all the ways, but in the best approximate way that we can. That's why it says be angry. But at the same time it says be angry and do not sin. So there's, there's a rightful anger and then there's some aspects of anger that we should not indulge. And if you read that sentence, the force of the sentence falls on the second command. It says be angry and to not sin. The force falls on the to not sin part. And one commentator says this, it's because it is harder to not sin than to be angry. It is easier to become angry than it is to prevent yourself from sinning. That's why the force is on the do not sin part. It doesn't say, for example, 
Be joyful and do not sin. Be kind and do not sin. It says be angry and do not sin because that's a real danger. And it's easier to be, become angry than it is to prevent ourselves from sinning. And the first thing we have to realize is that when it says be angry, the word there is not a continuous action, but it is an occasional or, as it, or when it's necessary type of action. So Christians are called to be always holy, always loving. We're not called to be always angry. It's not a continuous state. You have to be angry when the situation demands it. So anger should not be our personality, but it should be a response of something within our personality that, res- that reacts against evil and sin. And what is sin? When you say be angry and do not sin, what is sin? What do we learn in Sunday school? What is sin? Sin is falling short of the mark of God's standard. Now we talked a lot in chapter four about uh, measuring up to the standard of Christ. So sin is falling short of the mark of God's standard. So falling short of the standard to which God's anger aspires. So we sin in our anger when we fall short of the standard to which God's anger is aimed. So we ask ourselves, is it purposeful? Is it aimed against clear unholiness or sin or evil? Is it protective? Is it intentional to protect and grow those in our care? Or is it just protecting ourselves and our interests? Is it controlled? The next part of this word says, do not let the sun go down on our anger. Right, it has nothing to do with daylight savings. What it means is that if your anger cannot be subsumed or controlled by your will, and because we are human beings, there's a certain leeway. But if it cannot be controlled by your will within a certain amount of time, that anger falls short of the mark. That means your anger should be honed in such a way that you are in control. When it says be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, the second time the word anger there really should be translated as a state of anger. The first one is an instant right, it's a reaction. The second one is a state of anger, so it should be, do not let the sun go down on your irritation, so to speak. So an event turns to a state of anger, and anger, when it festers, results in negative, uncontrollable consequences. So you should be able to control it. And that's the hardest thing to master, because anger is powerful, it is destructive, and to gain control over it is like gaining control over nuclear fusion because it wants to explode and devour. That is its very nature. When you understand that anger is destructive, when you're trying to control it, you're trying to put a boundary around the very nature of that thing. And you have to notice in this passage, your control over your anger is not dependent on the response of the other person. There's another passage that Jesus talks about, where he talks about reconciliation. Now put your gift before the altar and go. But here it doesn't say that. It says, do not let the sun go down on what? Your anger. You see, reconciliation is desirable, but it is not mandated for your control over your anger. You go back to Psalm chapter 4, verse 4 to 5. It says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. 
offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. It says, be angry and do not sin, but what is he doing? After time has passed, it's nighttime, he's sitting in his bed and he is being silent before his God. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, the end of this passage, it says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why? As God in Christ forgave you. The impetus for our behavior should be our trust in God, our relationship with him, and our recognition of the fact that we have been bestowed with so much grace where we should have been consumed by the anger of God. So knowing and believing that in the, in the depths of our heart should be the first means by which we control our anger by which we can inculcate kindness and tender-heartedness, even in the face of injustice against us, and it should make us ready and quick to forgive, just like God forgave us in Christ. So is our anger purposeful? Is it protective? Is it controlled? Is it considerate? Have we taken into account the context and the character and the deficiencies of the other person, whether that be immaturity or ignorance, And is our anger appropriate to that? Or is it based on our own standards with no consideration of anything else? See, if God's anger can be melted by these factors, by simple factors as the people, the condition of their heart, how can we claim to have a higher standard? No, my anger is always objective. You know, Jesus was angry at a lot of people, right? He was angry at Pharisees. But then you read all these passages where he's like, he walked around, he saw the crowds, and what did he have? He had pity on them. He had compassion on them. So there were Pharisees who demanded anger, and there were those who were just as sinful, who demanded compassion. So what are we to avoid? in our anger. Romans chapter 12, verse, uh, let's read verse 19. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your anger is basically intention towards seeking vengeance, holding a grudge, then that is sin. That's why God says, you, you leave it. Take your anger and leave it with me so that I can work out righteousness. Do not hold a grudge. Secondly, in this passage itself, verse 31 is a consequence, if you think about it, of an uncontrolled explosion of anger that has been festering in the heart. Verse 31 of chapter 4, Ephesians. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. These are all influenced and consequences of anger. What is bitterness? It's holding a grudge in your heart because you feel you have, there has been injustice done against you. Wrath and anger, that is the sinful anger of man. What is clamor? Clamor is shouting with a loud voice. What is slander? Slander is, there's two aspects to slander. One is uh, seeking to demean the character of someone, but the other aspect, which is probably intentioned here, is abusive speech. So holding grudges, 
being sinful and shouting and abusive. These are all consequences of anger that is left to fester. That is not being controlled and given to God. In short, our anger needs to aim to the standard of God's, God's character, else we are falling short of the mark. And we have to be very careful, you're falling short of the mark, not because you're not angry, but because you're sinning. If you're not angry, you're not falling short of the mark of God. So like, don't take it to mean that I have to find ways to get angry. You fall short of the mark of God when you sin. So we saw what anger should be, what anger should not be, and then we asked what is the goal? What is the motivation behind being angry? You know, all complexity can be made simple if it's put towards purpose, right? That's what nuclear energy is. There's nuclear reactions that happen when you do something you know, to, to, to the nucleus or to the atoms. But you know what's the goal. What's the goal? To create energy. So you only do it in a certain way. So what is very complex becomes much more simple. When you have a goal, and we already talked about the goal in this, um, we already talked about it in general, right? We have to affirm the holiness of God. We have to react against sin. We have to protect others from injustice and evil. But in the context of Ephesians chapter 4, we have to ask ourselves, why is it in a passage that talks about the unity and the, and the fundamental nature of the church? Because we have been talking about building up the church. So when we read, speak the truth, it says, why do we speak the truth? Because we are members, because we are united. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but labor to help his brother or sister in need. Let only good speech come out of your mouth to build each other up. So what's the goal in the context of the unity of the church? And it doesn't say it positively in this verse, but it, it gives us two negative instances that we can take to understand what the goal should be. So the first negative you know, expression of that goal is verse 27. It says, give no opportunity to whom? To the devil. The devil is a, you know, is a term for Satan, but the word highlights some particular characteristics of Satan. One is that Satan is a slanderer. Right? He calls into question the character of someone. Right? Another word for slander is accuser. We read throughout the New Testament that Satan is someone who seeks to accuse the brethren, who seeks to demean the character of your brother and sister. The word devil also um, highlights the fact that he's a deceiver. You know, our old self, it's corrupt through deceit. So more than just lies, Satan takes advantage of something and corrupts it towards evil. That is what deceit is. He takes something good and transforms it into something bad. And another word for, uh, you know, word that comes to mind when you see the word devil, uh, you read it in Ephesians chapter 6. It's that he's a schemer. He takes advantage of the opportunities that are presented to him. Right? It's a scheme so that he can accomplish what he wants. So that's why it says, give no opportunity to the devil. 
So the devil can take something that is intended to be used for good, which is anger, and twist it in order to unleash its full destructiveness, which are the behaviors that we read in verse 31. When we lose control of our anger, the devil will use it to make us harbor grudges and bitterness and lose our temper. Where righteous anger looks out for others, the devil will make anger a means to protect ourselves and our interests. The devil will use our anger to make us look down on others. You know, C.S. Lewis said, the pleasure of anger, the gnawing attraction that, that makes one return again and again to it, is the fact that one feels entirely righteous when one is angry, so that the other person is pure darkness and you are pure light. That is a function of the devil that he makes you look down on someone else and says you are the righteous person and the other person is evil. Therefore, you should be angry. He's deceitful. He's a slanderer. He's a schemer. Where God says you control it, you let go of it, you leave it to me, the devil takes advantage. And that's why it's important. Romans chapter uh, where we read in Romans, it says, you leave it to God. If you don't leave it to God, you are leaving it to the devil. Either God will take care of your anger, or the source of your anger, or the devil will take care of it. That's a decision that we have to make. Either you leave it to the wrath of God, or you leave it to the schemes of the devil. The second negative aspect you know, that's mentioned in this passage. In verse 30, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How can we grieve the Holy Spirit of God? Usually, when we talk about this, we know we, we, we understand it to have a personal impact, right? The Holy Spirit lives within us. So when we sin, we are grieving the Holy Spirit who lives within us, which is true. But here it's specifically tied to an earlier verse in chapter four. Chapter four and verse three says that you should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So how do you grieve the Holy Spirit? When your anger breaks the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, when there's divisiveness in the body, which is the aim of the devil in encouraging anger and bitterness among the members of the body, then you grieve the Holy Spirit. So positively speaking, the aim of our anger, which is controlled and purposeful and time-bound, is to protect the holiness of the body. Negatively speaking, it should not be a cause of divisiveness and disruption among the members of the body. It is to promote the unity of the body in the spirit of holiness, not to bring about division or dissension. So that's in the context of the church. What about in our daily lives? You know, last week we talked about uh, relationships. So how do we tie all of that together? How do we tie this theme of uh, being united in the church with being mature and, and, and how to be mature in our relationships with each other? And that's why I said it's complex. You cannot get a, a cookie cutter prescription of what, how you should behave so that you are appropriately angry and you are not appropriately angry. Other than to say that you should be aware of the goal. You should have that immersed in your heart so that eventually our behavior reflects 
the aim that we have put in our heart. That being said, what are some questions you know, we can ask when we get angry? You know, we already said you know, anger has to be purposeful, it has to be protective, it has to be controlled, it has to be considerate. But, but are there some other things that we can use? And I, I came up with a few. You know, the first one, am I dealing with a clear, objectively understood unholiness or sin or evil? Right? Is this a clear sin or evil that I'm reacting to, that I'm getting angry at? It should be clear. It's very important to remember that convictions are not the same as unholiness. Differences in conviction need not be the cause of anger unless there's clear sin or evil involved. I'll give you an example. I'm very convicted that believer's baptism is the only proper means of baptism as commanded by the New Testament. That is my conviction. I don't foresee a change to it. I don't think before I die that I will ever change that opinion. And I'm convicted of it from the scriptures. Does that mean I will get angry at infant baptism? Convictions are not the same. Your convictions are important. But it should raise to a level of unbreachable sin before we can say that conviction should lead to anger. Secondly, is, is the anger primarily intended for the good of someone else or is it for my good? Is the anger a result of my ego or identity getting assaulted or is the anger intended to protect or bring about a change in someone's behavior or am I protecting someone against evil? Am I vengeful? Am I holding grudges? Am I bitter? And this is very hard, you know. I can say, well, can you ever be in a situation where there's not some self-interest, right? But it's not saying that there should be no self-interest. Every parent has some self-interest in the fact that their child should be disciplined in the fear of the Lord. But is it, it's asking, what is its primary intention? Is it for the other person or is it for you? Another question, a third question you can ask, am I prone to losing control of my anger? Like, am I like a machine gun? Like, you know, have you seen a Gatling gun? You just rotate it, it just sprays bullets. Is my passion and my zeal, you know, primarily just destructive and it hinders the impact that I want to see in them? You know, some of those behaviors that we read in verse 31, am I abusive? Am I holding bitterness? Have I found a loophole? Like, I'm very good at doing this. Have I found a loophole where I can lose control of myself and then calm down and then say to myself, I will never let the sun go down on my anger. That is not the intention. The intention is not to say that I get angry, but when I get angry in five minutes, I cool down. The intention is that do you have control? If you have lost control, it doesn't matter how long your anger lasted. Lastly, am I considerate? In all things above that I've just stated being true, is there still some factor that should mitigate, that should impact if I should 
be angry or stay angry? Is there ignorance? Is there immaturity? Is there a context? Are you at a gospel meeting? Or is there a, are you in a gospel opportunity with someone else? Where if you get angry at something you should probably get angry about, maybe they said some heresy or blasphemy, it's still not called for because the context is not demanding anger in that situation. Am I considered how this will bring about God's glory or is it just a means for me to deal with the situation in a way that I can say, well, I did what I had to do. So just to illustrate, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about a parental illustration, you know, just because something I'm familiar with. And I'll make it even more personal. I'll, I'll use the illustration of, being, of preparing for my sermon. So when you, you know, like everyone, when you prepare for something, you want to have a certain amount of peace and quiet or not to be left to your own devices, not to be disturbed. So I tell my children, do not disturb me. I'm preparing for my sermon. And then they come over and over into the basement. So was there a clear command? Yes, there was a clear command. Was it objective? Very objective. Was it intended for some greater good? Yes, I'm preparing my sermon so that I can preach and edify the people of God. Absolutely intended for some greater good. Is there self-interest? There's a little bit of self-interest. But at the same time, I want to teach them obedience. Am I going to lose control? If I think of this as something that is a, a position of no compromise, non-negotiable, how am I going to react? How long before I get angry and get bitter at them or, or angry at my wife, whatever it is? Am I being considerate? No. They are three years old and one year old. I'm not being considerate. It doesn't matter. There is a clear command of obedience. There's a greater good that is involved. I'm not losing control, but I'm not being considerate of their immaturity and their lack of understanding. Would this be different if they were teenagers? Probably should be. Would this be different with their same children if they have a habit of running out of the house and into the road? Probably should be. And I was reading in yesterday's uh, newspaper, the local newspaper, that some 13-year-old took his dad's SUV onto the 401 and crashed it and put his 14-year-old neighbor uh, near to death. Are there situations where you should absolutely be angry at your children? Definitely. But is there a mandate that you should always be angry regardless of context? There isn't such a mandate. So how do you deal with situations where it ha keeps happening again and again and you cannot become angry? Because you've considered everything and said, I cannot get angry at these two young children for not understanding what is the importance of dad preparing for a sermon. But you have to work around it, right? We, call, we have a word for that, it's called sacrifice. You sacrifice something else. You sacrifice some other time. I trust in God that the deficiencies due to my circumstances 
will be taken care of by him. And I say this with great sadness, that a lot of the angerness, the anger and bitterness in our heart is because we believe that our potential is frustrated by the people that God has given us to care and to nurture. We believe, we get angry because we believe that our potential and our aims are being frustrated by the very people that God has given into our care. The devil is a deceiver. He doesn't care about the purity of the source of your anger. He only cares about its impact. Don't fool yourself thinking that because the motivation for my anger is so pure, that somehow the devil will not take hold of it. They said Jesus had great compassion. He had great pity on the crowds. He said, Father, forgive them, the people who have put him on the cross. And Philippians chapter 2, we read this always, right? Philippians chapter 2, verse 4 to 8, it says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of Ben, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, it says, look not to your own interest, but to the, look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And when Jesus looked to the interest of others and put their interest above himself, what happened to him? He died. He gave his own life. And then you ha we have to ask, what sacrifice is too great in light of that? Our preferences, our vision, our desires, our plans for the future, our expectation of who we are, our identity, our protection of our time and our resources. What is so great when you consider that Jesus Christ putting your interests above himself died for you. Do not fall into the trap of having holy cows. You know what's a holy cow? It's a non-negotiable in your life, which others can't understand why it is non-negotiable. When you have holy cows in your life, it ultimately leads you down the path of self-interest, which ultimately leads sinful anger because you're seeking to protect what is yours and destroy everyone who would encroach upon your domain, your space, your time. He gave his life for us. So we need to ask, what can we give others? That's why it ends with verse 32 in chapter 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, Forgiving one another, why? As God in Christ forgave you. What was the price of that forgiveness? His life. Where we should have been consumed by his anger, he took pity on us. Will that melt the hardness of our hearts? The, the, you know, the hardness of our own self-interest, our own domains, our own expectations. And instead, will that enable us to be kind and tender-hearted? to be quick to forgive. And as we grow both in holiness and in maturity,
then perhaps we can truly come to understand what it means to be angry and do not sin. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, sometimes uh, we understand that it is beyond us to fully understand that it is complex and it's complicated, but you have not left us without help. We thank you for your spirit who lives within us and to illuminate your scriptures when we put our minds and our hearts to it. And we thank you for the examples that you have given us, especially, O Lord, in the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is our model in how we are to behave as Christians, as Christ followers. So we pray, O Lord, that as we all deal with the issue of anger and bitterness, that we may understand what it means to be truly angry, to, be, to, be, to react against evil and injustice and to, and to protect those who are defenseless and who cannot speak up for themselves, but rather, a lot that we may do so without being guided just by our own ego and our own self-interest. And at all times, that we may do so in a way that does not demean your name, by being controlled in ourselves, by, by aiming for peace and restoration and joy, and a lot, and only using the force of our anger when it's needed. So we pray a lot that you grant us the wisdom and, uh, and the uh, understanding and, uh, and the impression of your Holy Spirit as we deal with situations in our daily life so that we can glorify you in our families and in the midst of your people. We pray, O Lord, that you continue to guide us and guide us. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen.